everyone and welcome back to the EdTech podcast. Our mission is to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. And it's great to be back. This podcast season, we have some excellent episodes lined up for you, including Jeff Salingo, author of Who Gets In and Why on University Access, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Director of Content for Shortcasts at Blinkist on Audio and Learning, and Jamie Amore of Cosmic Kids Yoga on Wellbeing, EdTech and YouTube success with over 1 million hits a day. You can also find us over on Clubhouse, where we'll be debriefing each episode and rounding up all of the best resources shared from our guests there. But before all that, today's episode. This week, we've got Thomas Maul in conversation with Laura McInerney. Thomas is the author of Cracking Social Mobility, How AI and Other Innovations Can Help to Level the Playing Field. Thomas is passionate about social mobility. A personal hero of his is Jenny Lee, who played a leading role in establishing the Open University and is therefore, and I quote, an old school level upper. Of the biggest myth or foe in education or technology that he would like to see corrected, Thomas writes that social mobility is a divisive agenda which merely aims to airlift the talented few out of poverty whilst neglecting the needs of the many. This characterisation is not only inaccurate, it is dangerous. Talent and potential are distributed equally and abundantly throughout society. The problem is that opportunity is not. Proponents of social mobility simply want this to be put right. In this episode, Thomas talks about how technology can help to make education more equitable. For example, intelligent tutoring systems enabling all students to enjoy the benefits of private tuition and AI, along with other innovations making teachers more productive and effective, hence improving educational standards equitably across the board. On formative experiences, Thomas says, At the age of eight, I and a few other children in my class were identified as needing additional support. This meant being taken out of whole class lessons and being given focused support. This extra support must have set something alight in me. It really helped me to bloom. Since then, I've gained an ingrained belief that anyone is capable of anything, and I have a vehement hatred of people writing others off. He goes on to say, Studying science and math subjects at A-level, and for most of my degree, I didn't have experience of writing essays and was hence awful at it. I got one too many thirds for written assignments later in my degree, which was really quite disheartening. I got some support with essay writing and basically reconfigured my whole understanding of what good writing was supposed to look like. It seemed to work and now writing is something I love to do. As well as the author of newly published book Cracking Social Mobility... Thomas works at JISC as product lead at the National Centre for AI and Tertiary Education and previously led operations at the Institute for Ethical AI and Education and worked for a leading edtech company. He started his career as a science teacher, completing the Teach First programme in Yorkshire and you can find Thomas at TomMall8 on Twitter. In conversation with Thomas is educational journalist and co-founder of TeacherTap, Laura McInerney. Of myths in education and technology, she says, I think the biggest myth that tech companies have about teachers is that they're all just hanging on the edge of their seat, waiting for technology to come along and save them. In reality, most teachers are far more practical and realistic. 
They understand, because they face these realities a lot, that technology involves having plugs and replacements and logins and spending time waiting for things to boot up and dealing with it breaking. All of this is uncertain and often uncontrollable, which are two things you want to reduce in classrooms. So I think teachers are largely very wary of tech. And I think the biggest myth that teachers have about tech companies is that they should be able to provide every feature they want, exactly how they want it, for about 3p a year, because schools are not for profit. Most people have no idea how much it costs to develop, build and maintain technology. It's not like pharmaceuticals where you spend a tonne to develop the medicine, but at least once you have it figured out, you can sell it for decades. Tech requires a constant development and maintenance. It's like running a very expensive restaurant 24 hours a day. A personal hero for Laura is Sir Tim Brighouse, the school's commissioner for London between 2002 and 2007. Laura writes she was born in Widnes, a chemical town in the early 80s, with two parents made redundant when she was six years old. I quote, The very definition of grim up north. It was also great. My parents are funny, resilient, supportive, but also laid back. No one was more shocked by my GCSE results than my mum, who seemed to think that teachers telling her I was very clever was just them being polite. Going to a bog-standard comprehensive school that's now closed and then to an adult education centre, a weird FE hybrid thing, and then to Oxford, does make me think that schools can come in many forms and it can all be okay. On biggest wins or failures, Laura writes... Teaching. I was terrible for the first year. Really, genuinely awful. I failed almost every day. But I learned there, as well as when I worked at McDonald's, that bad days come and then they go. Just keep walking. It all gets better eventually. Win. I won a four-year court battle with the Department for Education. It's what catapulted me from being a teacher to being an educational journalist and is seen as my big success. Fighting it also took four Christmas days away from me to work on submissions, ruined my physical health from stress and the same day I was told I'd won, one of the loveliest people in my life entered a hospice for the last time and died a few days later. It taught me that if you become consumed with winning to the detriment to everything else in life, then you'll eventually be left with a trophy and you won't care one bit about it. Laura's favourite books or resources of the moment are Technology, Lost and Founder by Rand Fishkin, School, Anything by Seymour Sarasen, and Resource Readwise, which is her favourite app. And outside of education and technology, she is currently playing poker. So I'm not sure if she's winning or losing, but that is what she's doing. And just uh, from my own perspective, I loved editing this episode and listening to the various pushbacks and qualifications on both sides as the guests navigate contextual admissions, careers advice and evading technological determinism. So I hope you enjoy listening in too. And don't forget to drop your comments at Podcast EdTech on Twitter or during our Clubhouse sessions. So take care, listeners, and see you back here for the next episode. Here we go. your school like where you attended as a pupil 
So I can say it was actually a school that's that's part of the Teach First program. And I think if, if anyone is listening who's done the Teach First program, it's probably the, the kind of school you wanted to be placed on if you were doing Teach First. So it's sort of two, two sides of that. That it was a school in a in a in a deprived part of, of Birmingham, uh, but it was a very it was a very well managed school. Um and it had a um a head teacher who was who was knighted, so Dexter Hutt. Um, and so was was probably a, a fairly good place to to be a Teach First participant, and you know it was it was a good place to be a student as well. Did you have Teach First teachers? No, yeah. I'm not quite. I'm not quite of that age, and because it was Birmingham, I think if if there had been, whilst there could have been, you know, Teach First had started by the time I was at school, but I'm not sure it had quite got out uh, to to Birmingham at that point. Okay, and what was your experience of that school then? Um. I mean, one one sort of point to mention is it, it was it was a school that was very um, innovative and was very tech focused. But ironically, despite the fact of being a, a little bit of a, a tech evangelist at the moment, it wasn't actually the sort of you know the more technical innovative things that the school did that I I enjoyed I think my my favorite um subjects were were maths where it was largely just work through these problems but you know we had a teacher who really wanted to push us who really would go into the details I'm always interested with um with people's schools anyone's schools but um I went to a school that uh, is not on the teacher first program because it closed down so it was like a very what we would right. call bog standard comprehensive school and it had failed Ofsted over the years and it kept getting sort of passed from head teacher to head teacher I think I was there for a uh, turnaround head teacher number one or two um and it was a bit I don't know it was fine I liked school I think if you're reasonably bright and you have nice friends it doesn't none of it matters that much it's just the conditions in which you have those things <laughs> um, yeah. can vary and, massively. And I think, yeah, I think what I, I mean, I think my overriding impression from school is that I had some really good uh, teachers, um, particularly my maths teacher, my my form teacher and um, physics teacher. And I think, I think when you've got great teachers, they're going to be great regardless of what school they're in. And that's, that's ultimately what you, um, remember and I think that's that's the kind of prevailing thing I think there's definitely things I you know I would change about my school and how it was run and and and, and sort of um particularly perhaps it's approach to, to the academic subjects although we're having great teachers in in academic subjects uh, made up for that so yeah and I think that's probably part of what what inspired me to to go into the classroom myself was the the great teachers yeah, I guess with the book um, being around social mobility there usually tends to be a reason why people become interested in that topic so was there something that led you to doing the book around that yeah I mean the line of best fit there that sort of links those things together I think was the fact that I, I was a school where there weren't um you know I don't know if I was the very first person to go to Oxford from my school but was certainly one of the first and one of the few um and I think always sort of had a sense around that, that, you know, actually a lot of my peers were, were equally as bright and were, were great, um, great thinkers and, and, and had brilliant minds, but perhaps could have, could have done uh, equally as well. And a lot more could have been, uh, you know, aspiring to those lengths if, if pushed a bit harder. And I think that was always something that, and made me really interested in education and going into education. But I think uh, having worked in in schools in uh, deprived parts of, of Yorkshire in the Teach First programme, that's another key sort of formative moment that, that really made me um, 
yeah, passionate about the issue of social mobility. And I've seen that Teach First have recently done a, um, a report, and I think they've summed it up as a sort of enough is enough, and you know we need to fight for this. And I think that's something that that's a that's an attitude that has always uh, been in my mind. Enough is enough. This you know we can't have these levels of educational inequality, and and you know as as anyone who's who's ever worked in a you know a deprived school and and uh, worked within deprived communities knows that these people are fantastic brilliant bright vibrant people who have you know every every bit the, the same potential as their their more privileged counterparts yet that the outcomes just aren't there and and that's that's to do with the conditions and not the individuals and i think that's that's what i don't know creates that real sort of impetus to 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 want to see change happen what do you think are the conditions that cause that that are within a school? Because if you said before, you know, there's good teachers in all of lovely schools, they're as bright as everybody else, they're as sparky and, every, and everything. If we're just talking about school and not outside of school, because that's going to be outside of the realms of the conversation, what is it that you think is not happening in those schools that should be happening? Well, I think um, I think there's there's a there's there's a huge number of things but i'll kind of pin it down to the things that i think there are sort of um that we can start looking at solutions to um one is despite you know i i did sort of mention that i think good teachers will do well in any schools but it's um you know fairly well documented that actually in in schools in deprived areas they are much more likely to have uh, teachers who are who are less less qualified, less experienced, likely to have higher turnover of teachers, likely to have recruitment gaps, meaning that that you know lessons are filled by by supply teachers or or you know cramming the timetable with, with putting more workload onto other teachers, which ultimately makes them uh, less effective because uh, you know, everyone's got in a finite bandwidth. So I think actually making sure great teachers for every single student is is a part of this is has got to be central to the solution there. And, and I think another another really key issue is it's not just about yeah the, the academic achievement. It's about making sure that students have the information, the advice, and guidance to make sure that they can convert that as well. And I think careers education has come on in in leaps and bounds over the last uh, few years, thanks to the the Gatsby benchmarks primarily. But I think there's more um, there's more that we can do in that area to to make sure that everyone really understands the possibilities available to them can be can be inspired to to go out and 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 achieve their full potential um by ultimately by crystallizing that that potential and and making them know where they can the destinations they can reach and that's what the book does right like you boil it down into these two different things so it's one is around the kind of the teaching and the teacher aspect of this how do we get more teachers who are, well, how do we get more teachers to apply for the most challenging schools? I think, like, take quality off the table and let's just talk about quantity, right? It is harder if you work in a deprived area or in a geographically remote area. So especially if you're on the coast or you're rural and you sort of draw a circle, a commuting circle around your school, if half of it is in the sea because you're in Blackpool, then ultimately there's just fewer people for you to pick from. So then when you're picking from a smaller group, the likelihood is that the quality will vary in a different way because obviously you're, you're picking from a smaller crowd. So I think we can say like there's definitely a challenge if you are in certain types of schools, you either don't have as much choice of teachers and that can influence the the, um, the the quality of people who you can take in. And then the second factor, as you mentioned, is 
when you're working in a community where you can't rely on the children to have supportive parents, that they've got computers or internet at home, then actually there aren't drug groups coming after them to come and work as meals or anything else. If you can't take that for granted, then you've already increased your workload because you've just got a bunch of other stuff that you're you're dealing with. It's kind of anyone who's working in those circumstances, be that the police or a hospital or, or a retail shop, right? If you have a shop in a deprived area, there are more things that you're going to be dealing with than in an affluent area. So I think we can all sort of take it for red that it's a more challenging job and it's harder to get those teachers. And I know in the book, that's one of the bits that you've looked at. If we can just stick with that for a minute, it's quite interesting, given all of those challenges, the place you've gone is AI. Like most people then start to go, okay, can we work with the parents or can we put mental health in or can we add better social services and or can we pay teachers more? But you've gone for AI as this, as at least a part of the solution. What What's driven that? I think... I'd sort of boil that down to a, a number of components of what AI is really good at. One thing it's very good at is automating workload, um, which you know we've already touched on is, is a huge issue in schools. It can it can automatically complete certain tasks that would otherwise require humans. Uh, another area is is actually the an, the analysis and the insight. You know, artificial intelligence is very good at processing and evaluating, drawing insights from large amounts of data. Uh, and I think that can be really powerful in education, primarily because information is like oxygen in the education context. If we look at the work of Black and William on the one hand and Hattie on the others, which are, you know, eminent educationalists, really a big part of what educators are doing is they are taking in information either on their students' needs, their students' strengths, the gaps in their knowledge, their, their areas for development, and then making decisions on how they, uh, how they address those needs, or they are actually looking at their own practice and they are analysing what works and what doesn't work and they're changing their practice accordingly. Um, and that's something that AI can be enormously helpful with. Um, and I think almost putting these two together, you've almost got... Uh, the sort of third strand, which is AI can personalize learning and, and can be an, a, can enable um, adaptive learning uh, directly. Um, so just to kind of talk on some of those issues in, in sequence. So with automation, we've already said that, you know, teacher workload uh, is a huge issue. It's led to a recruitment and a retention crisis. And this is particularly acute in schools in, um, in deprived areas. Um, and that's partly because the workload's particularly acute. As you said, there is there is just more on teachers' plates in, in those type of schools. Now, the, I think the statistic that really stands out with there with, when it comes to AI and workload is that, uh, and McKinsey has, has predicted that based on the technologies that already exist, up to between 20 and 40% of a teacher's workload could be automated. Um, so if we assume that, you know, teacher that, you know, teachers working 50, 60 hours a week, we're talking sort of 20 to 25 hours uh, at the upper end there in terms of what could be automated. And I think that, that that could be hugely powerful. So like, can you give an example of one of those things that could be automated? Yes. Yeah, so with um, with administrative tasks, which according to the, the uh, teacher workload survey makes up about four hours of the teacher's uh, weekly diet of workload, You've got um, tools like uh, chatbots so to, to find it to help teachers manage their work, to manage administrative tasks. So finding information that might take five, 10 minutes normally can take a matter of seconds. Um, 
We've got um, adaptive learning platforms, which, which can be partly to do with the work associated with automated marking, content creation, collation of data, manipulating and using that data because essentially everything is marked, collated, analysed uh, for teachers so that all that workload is taken off. So not only do they, they get um, the time back there, they actually get a lot more information than they might normally get in the same amount of time. Um, on the horizon, we've got um, technologies such as automated marking of essays, which is, is obviously something that's that's very exciting. So in, in early 2020, um, and before, before uh, the pandemic was sort of uh, hit our shores, um, Ofqual announced a competition for um, automated to find software that could automate the marking of essays. Uh, and there were a number of other products that are developing at the moment that using AI to automate the marking of essays. And I think it's obviously going to be a sensitive issue using those for, for summative assessments and for, for examined assessments. But if they were used for a more formative process, which I think would be more palatable, there's huge workload implications there. So that's one, that's one area where I think AI could be very effective is, is automating that workload. But also what we can look towards and what we can, can really look forward to is a position where teachers are able to use that time to actually provide you know both both better and more varied learning experiences for learners and I almost feel like a, a holy grail um, from a social mobility point of view was where every school can almost be like a you know like private schools are and open to to five or six in the in the in the evening afternoon time for for debate clubs model UNs all these sort of enrichment activities that are just very difficult to pile on top of the already huge workload that teachers have access to. I mean, we could also imagine, you know, if we were able to automate 40% of a teacher's workload, giving every, every student the opportunity to have Oxbridge style tuition uh, tutorials once or twice uh, a week with, you know, either on their own or in small groups. So I think that's a, that's a really powerful one. Um, when we're talking about AI, in one sense, we're talking, you know, the very broad sense of the word is things that can do tasks that would normally require a, a human to do. And that, that obviously, you know, largely talk, it, it sort of lends itself to the automation side of things. Um, but in terms of how AI does that, in most cases, AI's real power is its ability to uh, churn through and, and draw out insights and, and cluster together uh, data so that we can um, so that we can we can find patterns that we wouldn't otherwise have found, um, and I think one one interesting example that's that's already um, you know proven its metal in in terms of social mobility there is is the the GPS system that's used at uh, Georgia State University, um, and essentially this is a this is a predictive analytics system. So it uses data from the hundreds of thousands of students who who have, who have been in the campus to find out which students are most likely to to drop out of courses or, or to fail their courses um, and it's able to do that in, in by by analyzing the data by drawing out by finding these patterns and uncovering insights and details uh, that were, were hidden in the data um, you know it might be possible for, for humans to do that via sort of uh, linear regression but very mm. unlikely given the given the huge amount of time. I and, don't know. Uh, Cambridge, like Cambridge University, I definitely I went when I was editor at school, I was previously editor at school suite before we started Teach Tap. And one of the stories we looked at in 2016 was around Cambridge University bringing in admissions tests. 
because at the time AS levels were disappearing and they were worried about what would happen if they didn't have those to predict who who was going to get in. And so I went and met with the people who were kind of looking at this. And one of the things I remember them showing me was they had a spreadsheet and they had essentially worked out like it's not this is not that hard for statisticians to do, right? Like they had looked at over the years people's GCSE results, people's A-level results, then a couple of other factors, what schools they'd gone to, what performance, relative performance of those schools were, was there anything uh, around deprivation indices, because some of that comes in from the UCAS forms, and then they'd looked at what their degree outcomes were. And essentially, they were able to kind of calculate a system where when you put input for a UCAS form, right, this kid has all of these things, what's the likelihood that they're going to get kind of a first, a 2-1, a 2-2, who do we want? And then what are we going to do in terms of our admissions to, to play around with this? And I think universities have been reasonably sophisticated in that kind of thing, certainly in the UK, for a little while because of the requirements on them around disadvantaged students, office, you know, OFS and everything else. So, I mean, we're no, saying I- that humans couldn't do this, but like humans plus a calculator and a bit of an Excel spreadsheet probably can do this, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think... I mean, the key thing there is the number of data points that you want to collect. And, and I think if you've got a small enough uh, number of data points, then um, then that then that then that is possible. And I think it's an interesting example there. So, um, I mean, con- contextual admissions is, I think, I sort of stepping back from the um, AI per se uh, argument. I think a, a really key part of this is about making decisions based on data and contextual admissions is a really key example of um of of how data informed decision making can can be useful for social mobility so there's you know there's a lot of statistics about how if you are from a deprived deprived background and you get three a's at a level or 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 three b's at a level you're likely to outperform a student from a less deprived from a from a more privileged background who had the same um a level results and that's that's you know that's that's fantastic news and uh you know there is a number of universities who are really making use of that insights with contextual admissions but but it has been identified that that one of the things that's slowing down the the more widespread use of of contextual admissions is the sort of not just the the lack of data but but how the data is almost siloed in different places and they're not joined up enough in order to make these very accurate predictions about who's most likely to do well so um even if we're not talking about ai itself there i think we are talking about a situation where to to make contextual admissions work which i think is something that's you know a really key example of of how social mobility uh, can be can be boosted by data um making sure that we've got the right data in the right places uh is is really key to that do you really think that's what it's what's slowing this down is a sort of lack of data or lack of joined up data versus actually this is hitting the road of some really difficult thorny philosophical issues which is that you know private schools don't love it because they've just charged an awful lot of money so that you can get the grades to get into university and the second we start to do contextual admissions then potentially they, that doesn't have the same value that it has beforehand that there is a genuine issue around if i've got 3 b's and you've got 3 a stars and we both turn up to university on the first day 
And I say, I've got three Bs, but hey, I'm from a poorer background, so I'll probably beat you in three years time. But in my first lesson, I sit there and I'm my first lecture, I'm way behind everybody else. Like, do I get demotivated? Actually, do I fall behind? Even though everything tells me in three years I'm going to get there, do I just decide to walk away? I don't I'm not convinced that the data is the biggest issue here. No, no. I mean, I don't think the data is the biggest issue. I think you're absolutely right there. I think it is one of the issues. Um, and and yes, I completely agree that, that the philosophical side of things is is probably the main factor that's slowing things down. I think I, I mean, I'm so convinced of the 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 virtues from an ideological point of view of, of contextual admissions that, um, yeah, rather than talking about you yeah, might as well you use this time to sort of plug those a little bit. And I think it's often seen as, as you know, contextual admissions is a way of lowering the bar um, and, and, you know, almost sometimes referred to as, as social engineering. But I think all it's really doing is it's sort of shifting the, the emphasis from um, attainment to aptitude. And if we have actually have the, the technology or, or the data rather um, that can predict aptitude with with a high degree of certainty, and we can say right, these two students uh, from very different backgrounds have the same aptitude despite the fact that they don't have the same attainment, then I think that's absolutely fair and that's absolutely valid because ultimately all that matters is is how you know what potential you have to do well once at university and I think the focus on attainment is uh, if you if aptitude is diffuse isn't it I mean you know and and the problem is can we actually get to aptitude obviously we know what attainment is we we know it we can find it can we get to aptitude I think philosophically if we can then that is far more important and technically and practically yes I think we can as long as we have the right data Oh, I, I mean, I just think we get into dicey territory. Like you start getting into, um, and this is the pessimistic view. Like we can come back to the optimistic view because I think you're doing a really <laughs> good job of painting the like the very optimistic feature for AI. And I'm sold in that. I think there's loads of things it will solve inevitably. I just also do hold on to some bits where we've got to hold our breath. And and I think if you say, you know, like basically we're going to get millions and millions of data points on children and then out of that some algorithm will decide what your potential for the future is we do get into this little bit slightly brave new worldy approach of um of something that feels that feels really difficult and i'm not sure people would love it i also think even just coming back to the school stuff around you know a computer telling you your aptitude for learning and saying right you're going to do this program and that program even part of that I think is going to be challenging for parents you know well, they, yeah. they often struggle I mean, with their kids being put in different sets then we say a computer has decided that actually you've got to be on the slow path and this one's got to be on the yeah, fast path. I mean and I, and I I really hate the sort of the this the determinism attitude I suppose what what really was we're talking about is at the moment attainment uh you know what you get at your GCSEs and your A-levels is already been used as a proxy for what you're likely to achieve at university um, or, or, you know, or how well you'll achieve in, in an apprenticeship, for instance. But if we can use the existing, if we can take your past attainment, your, your A-levels, your GCSEs, other relevant attainment points that we might have, plus uh, insights into you individually, um, 
as a person and and there might be other factors um in the in the loop as well as your your level of deprivation so what what sibling number you are uh, is can be very important i know actually mm. the interesting point you you've raised before you know what not just what with the socioeconomic background of your parents but also what job did they do because i know you've pointed out that you know teachers kids of teachers are much more likely uh, mm. to outperform students of a, a equivalent socioeconomic background with similar levels of so yeah i think um there's a lot of data points you can get there all i'm all we're doing really is just getting to a slightly stronger proxy okay because because there's the there's a bias in the current proxy that we use the attain your attainment is if you're from a wealthier background likely to overstate what you're doing whereas this new proxy of, of attainment uh, yeah I, I i do get no, the I, point about the sort of brave new world side of side of things but um, maybe it's brave new world plus right like in brave new world <laughs> you're sort of you're sort of born or it's decided what you'll be and i but i hear what i think what you're saying is well that might be more like the current grading system right like at 16 yeah. you do you sit an exam lottery go back further is already a sort of a predictor of, of what you're likely to get. So so we say, right, here you are, you have attained an A, and what that tells us is on this particular day, you were able to do this particular thing. But that's out of context. So contextual admissions has started adding some extra data in that's just saying, well, when you look at that A, you might also want to think about these things. And what you're saying is over time, as, as AI gets smarter or better or as we think about this more we get more used to it it might be that there are lots of other patterns and that might include um things you know things that otherwise get missed out could all be added in to that grading because that tells us more about your potential or at least statistically your potential now i know in schools when we've had those little grades in the past i don't know if when you were teaching you had these so kids will sort of sit in a test when they're about 14 and then they get a little normal distribution and it says right 60% 60% of people who are the same profile as you get a B, but you might get an A or you might get a C and these are the things that will move you up and these are the things that will move you down. So I suppose people who are very sceptical of that approach might also not like the approach that you've just talked about. But I, I can hear what you're saying, that for you it's it's got to be more accurate of what's going to happen in the future or at least gives you more of a distribution of what's possible than just, hey, on this day you got an A, well done, or in fact not well done because... We always knew you were going to get an A anyway, and it doesn't tell us anything about your future because maybe you just got that because you'd had amazing schooling and amazing home life, and it doesn't make any difference when you get to uni. You'll probably drop a bit behind. Is that kind of where you're coming from? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's a. I think, I think there's the the valid side of things. I think it's valid because exactly because of that because a grade doesn't tell you this the whole story, and I think the re, you know the reason I'm particularly enthusiastic about contextual admissions um and also contextual recruitment sort of taking it up to the the next stage in in people's life um is is because it, it can make um intakes more more socially inclusive and there's there's a figure i think it's um if if the if if every university used contextual admissions as much as the universities that use it really well at the moment, we could see a 50% increase in the number of uh, students who were previously FSM uh, free, uh, eligible for free school meals um, at university. And I think, you know, given that I have absolutely no qualms about the validity and the, the philosophical nature of things, I think that would be, mm. yeah, a great, a great outcome and, and a really quick, easy easy win uh, from a social mobility point of view. 
it would certainly shake up the snow globe. I tell you that much. Um, <laughs> the, so let's let's talk about the contextual recruitment stuff because this is the other thing in your book that you look at is around kind of careers, guidance, information. So really on the jobs market, okay? Because when we talk about social mobility, people are always looking at schools, and it's been. I mean, that nearly pretty much 100 years now of everybody looking to schools for social mobility. But my line has always been that social mobility will only ever be as good as the labour markets allow it to be. You know, I can't create middle class jobs for my students. I can't if tomorrow our financial services collapse because they all have to go abroad, then actually that and everybody has to become a, a lorry driver because we have a massive lorry driver shortage that will probably have more of an influence on social mobility than whether or not I taught kids a certain grade in their RE exam 10 years ago, right? So there's different things here that that are on the go. So can you talk through how you think AI might help with the social mobility when it comes to that side of things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think this is the sort of the other innovations part of the equation. Um, I'd say this, the starting point for careers guidance particularly is to, is to say, well, what we've got now that we didn't have when I uh, was, was uh, teaching or when I was a student was, is the, the Gatsby benchmarks, which lays out eight standards that schools need to meet in order to say that they're, they're performing an excellent, um, uh, that they're, they're giving an excellent careers education. Uh, one of these, for instance, is um, encounters at workplaces. So students need to have a, a number of meaningful encounters at workplaces uh, in order to um, in order to fill that that benchmark. Um, and I don't for for any you know at all think that we should stop doing in you know in workplace uh, in person experiences. Although things could change as people work uh, work from home to a much greater extent, but. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that that's that's really great in terms of technology is is VR, AR, XR for um, for allowing people to experience a, a variety of different things. And one of the um, the innovations that really excites me are virtual internships. Um, and so there's a there's a really a leading example there from Linklatters who've got. Um, a virtual internship where students can can go and experience and see what it's like to be a city lawyer. Um, we're also seeing virtual internships and, and work-related experiences uh, from organisations like Jaguar, um, the, the the British Army. Um, Airbus uses VR technology to, to support um, pilots while they're while they're learning uh, to provide a, a risk-free environment for, for training. Which you know that technology could also be used in the plat uh, in by by students as well. Um, surgery is. Um, and again, it's it's about that the main the underlying principle is there are cases where it would just not be practical or not be safe uh, mm-hmm. for students to go and visit themselves, or or it, it might just be that actually students can't go and visit. You know, if if I was a year eleven student and wanted to say, well, I'm going to a year ten student rather, and I'm going to pick my work experience uh, for the either for the end of the year or for the beginning of year eleven, um, but I don't know which what the the best place for me to go and visit is. I, I you know I, I this is a, supposed to be a very formative decision, but I might effectively sort of pick out of the hat what I want to do. It's not going to be as meaningful an, an experience as if you've had the opportunity to do five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, or more of these virtual internships to really get an in depth experience of of where it is that you might get um, insight for. So I really see 
the, the virtual internships as an opportunity to extend the volume of, op- of, of career-based experiences people get. Mm-hmm. And once they've had that volume, that first layer, then you can start to pin down, well, what is it that I actually enjoy? What do I like to do? And, and the other benefit of that approach is that you're not just it's not just a reconnaissance mission when you're in these virtual in, uh, internships. You're actually you're, you're learning skills. They've been they've been built up, so you're actually developing yourself uh, at the time, and and that gives you a range of different things that you can you can talk about. Um, so yeah, definitely see those being um, the sort of the, the first step. Step. You know, we need to have still lots of in person career opportunities as well. I think the other technology. Um, Another well, another technology around careers uh, guidance and, and development is the social media platforms. Um, I mean, this is you know this is really basic. But if if you are uh, if you are from a deprived background or you know perhaps just just a comfortable but not particularly privileged background, your your social networks are not likely to be filled with uh, people in particular professions. Um, you 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 may not know, the, you know these jobs like management consultant, investment banker, uh, graphic designer, psychologist, architect. These might seem very nebulous to you and, and unlikely to be these concrete career pursuits that you you know you can really put your back into. But actually, using social media um, star resources uh, and, and a great example of that is is Prospella. You can actually start to meet people. Uh, be connected and and be linked up with these these great networks. And I think one of the things that gives me some confidence that um, that this could you know if this was this was widespread and that students from you know across the board and across the country were all using such um, resources um, to link up with with uh, various professionals. That what gives me some confidence that that could really work is is looking at just how much. Um, online dating has has changed how people have relationships i mean there's this study after study about how um you know for 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 couples in uh, i think the term was thin dating market so if you're uh, that might be based on 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 age location uh, sexuality it can be uh, you know the most important uh, route to meeting a partner um there are even claims that it's you know it's changing the makeup of society it's it's changing uh, you know the the time it takes for people to um to to go from the, the you know the courting phase up until till marriage so i think if we can see such big changes to to people's love lives from from technologies that connect people with each other i i've i've some real confidence that we can change uh you know people's livelihoods and, and how people get to the, the jobs yeah and, and reach the careers that they want to and so there's um I just I talked about a bit earlier about one of the things AI being really good at is its its ability to to analyze and draw insights from data. Um, and one of the, the benchmarks, I think it's benchmark two, is around um, labor market information and just making sure that students have key information about the late the labor market more generally. So this might be, you know, how how many jobs uh, are there likely to be, what the salaries related to those. Um, what locations in the country are they likely to be? And that's, you know, that kind of information is essential, but it's, it doesn't give you that really fine granular sense of, well, really what are the, you know, what are the jobs available in, in that area? Uh, and I think labour market information gives us a lot using 
um, AI-based resources to actually mine uh, huge amounts of information that we've got from, from job postings, um, from, from other surveys around the labour market, actually giving us a much more detailed overview of, of what jobs are available, how they link up to each other, how what kind of skill sets are required. Do you think that's actually useful for most people, though? Like, I get it's really exciting from a researcher perspective. I get that it's like handy to know actually 50% of people did this job first before they did this job. But I just think in terms of job searching and how likely you are to do something or not, it is very, um, it's very personal. So, you know, you, I could say to a kid, you're unlikely to get a job doing that. And then they're like, yeah, but my mom owns that business or whatever. So it's like that's one of the only slight things with some of this very big data when it comes to very individualized uh, issues and jobs are one of those paths and one of those things which do come down to often coincidence circumstance as you said before experience like that I'm sold on the VR by the way totally sold on that I think that's a brilliant idea if it could have meant that I didn't have to spend two weeks in a travel agent which is not the job for me on my school work experience that would have saved both me and them a very painful fortnight I could have spent six hours being bored out of my head and learned something really important which was that me and travel agents were not to be friends. But if the next day I could have done a different job and <laughs> the next day a different one, that would have been great. But when it comes to the actual career pathway, getting people in front of lots of different people, getting them to chat to lots of different people, that almost feels like the opportunity rather than the big data shoving them into patterns because it's about that serendipity, because it's about the experiences. And so I question whether, not that it's not interesting, not that people shouldn't collect it, but I, I just don't see what it, do no i mean i i agree that the the vr and and the opportunity to meet and connect with people from from a wide range of different professions probably are the the big ticket items but i think um i think the use of of data analytics to to really map out and and discover the the nooks and crannies of the job market you know what if we discover things that are horrible as well? So a, a classic example, right? There was a recent, um, the Leo data that looks at all the university graduates and what they go into and what they come out of. One of the issues is around arts graduates. And there's a big, big fight on how you look at this. But when you include self-employed data, you know, there are arts degrees which have higher outcomes in terms of wages after a few years than computer science. Now, that's very bad because we want more computers to become developers. We want them to do computer science degrees and so on and so forth. So like that's not the finding that we want. Or another classic example is around um, maths and girls and, and science and everything else. Right? The issue is not that girls don't do maths and science. It's that when you actually look at it, too many men do maths and science and hardly any of them do childcare. And actually, we have a massive problem with childcare when you start looking at it, which is because of how horribly paid it is. So really, like if we properly looked at the data and we're trying to be a bit savvier about it, we'd tell fewer men to do maths. We wouldn't tell more women to do maths. We would tell fewer men to do it. Um, and if you kind of tell everybody that's I guess that's some of my worry there. like there's all kinds of anti-intuitive things that don't necessarily push people in the direction that you want them to go in. No, but I think I mean. I don't know why I'm saying that. I love the truth, right? Like I'm all about transparency. So clearly in in my heart of hearts, I want people to have this, but I'm just putting it back to you as like what happens if when we dig out this data, what we find is like women, basically loads of you go into a particular job and then you all drop out. So you should just not bother. Like, is that what we want to tell people? 
No, definitely not. And I think... Um, but it will be true. And some there will be industries where we will find that, where we will find that women have very, very high dropout rates. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the virtue of information is, is finding out then what you do about it to preempt it. And, and you know, the data might, the answer might not be in the data, but having as much information as possible is usually the best starting point for, for informing your decisions and, and hopefully coming out with the right ones. Um, and yeah, and I think finding out what's wrong is a, is a really important thing. And I, I, I think that that data and, and the, the amount of data that's coming from uh, the more advanced forms of labour market analysis, it's one of the utilities as well as being useful in some cases for students would be um, being useful for policymakers. Um, and and there we're not just talking about the issues of, of social mobility, we're talking about broader, the broader issue of inequality of opportunity. So mm-hmm. that includes, as you mentioned, gender inequality and, and, um, and, and almost certainly diversity uh, problems that we have at the moment as well give you a final specific push on this because I'm I'm grappling with it I don't know the answer I don't I, like I'm not I'm not against you on this I'm probably with you and that's why I'm trying to get you to <laughs> give me the answers so that I can feel fulfilled on this but a classic example is when you look across the happiest professions right hairdressers typically come out very very high and when you look at um some of the most suicidal professions people take their own life and actually vets and um, both of them really appeal to women. Um, often it's very high achievers who go into vet science and also other, other industries where there are higher rates of people who take their own lives. Again, you'll often find very, very high achievers. We've looked at the recent mental health longitudinal studies done by the NHS shows that exams, you know, exam anxiety is very particular for a group of often affluent, particularly, again, girls. So there's a part of me that says we bring all of this data together, right? And I go back to my comprehensive school, which was not doing so well, closing down in witness. And I look at all the data and probably going and becoming a hairdresser is quite a rational decision when you take all the data into account. It's probably going to make me happier. I'm probably actually going to be able to afford to stay at home and buy a house because it's reasonably cheap to live there. My apprenticeship wages will be very low. But as a woman in that town, most vocational routes that women take are pretty low paid anyway. And were I to go into any of the men's ones, my dropout rate would be much higher. And you could end up turning around and saying to me, like, by an algorithm, actually, the best thing for you is not social mobility. It's not going on to university. It's not going and doing those things that you want to do. Computer says, be a hairdresser. Then what? That's my worry. So I, I mean, I think this is really interesting, and I'm I, if, I'm going to answer the push with a sort of actually a slight sidestep, but go back to a point that you were mentioning earlier. And I think I think this is a fundamental point about what I see social mobility as as being about. And I I don't really don't see it about um, trying being using data and using technology to sort of determine where people are are ending up. I think I see social mobility. Ultimately, the problem is is it, it can be it can be think, thought about as it's a lack of control over your own life. If mm. you're more likely or less likely to do well in life because of your uh, your background, then it diminishes the the importance of your hard work, of your aspirations, of your character, of your resilience. So it's it's almost about disempowering someone um, 
at the point of birth. And I mean, the, the extreme of that and, and what, you know, ultra low levels of social mobility look like is, is, is more, like, more of a caste system than a class system where you literally don't have a choice but to be right, mm. at, uh, you know, in a particular bottom caste or a top caste. What I see social mobility, uh, what I see technology is doing is giving people the tools to make sure that actually your background doesn't as matter matter as much and, and actually what really matters is is your own efforts your your abilities your your tenacity your personal preferences uh, as well um you know so with the example of so looking back at, at schools um you know where you live your postcode is likely to be a, a fair determiner of the quality of school that you go to or that you know the size of your your parents bank account if you can afford to go to a, a great private school for instance then that that is you know that's that's a, a going to be a huge a huge boon for you in your life i think what my hope for for technology and you bringing technology into the classroom is actually that by there will still be a resource gap between private and state sector, but at least in the state sector, you'll make sure that actually all the schools have got the, the equivalent resources and, and issues that um, like having to spend more time on, um, on, on those more difficult prickly issues that arise in those circumstances will be diminished because that will be, there'll be so much time anywhere. There'll be much more abundance of it. You're actually reducing, um, reducing those gaps. And, and because basically, you know, it, I like to think about it in terms of the, you know, the printing press, when, when the printing press, before the printing press, books were hugely expensive because they had to be pushed and, and written by hand. But when you brought automation into the equation, they became really cheap. Literacy went up. People's life chances went up. You know, the printing press was, you know, the first and foremost and one of the greatest examples of how technology can increase um, social mobility. But the, the fruit from that tree has already been picked. So tools like virtual internships and, and social media resources are basically saying, well, actually, where you were born now might matter a lot less because this information about what careers and what jobs are available is is abundantly available if we think about the private tuition market you know you need to be able to spend a lot of money in order to get a private tutor you're much more likely to have it if you're from an affluent background but if tools like adaptive learning platforms were good enough uh, and and they are absolutely accelerating in that direction they've already been you know there are meta-analysis that claim that they are as good as human tutors then resources no longer matter because all the resources are uh, abundant and, and mm. cheap. And there's an example in um, Sir Anthony Selden's The Fourth Education Revolution, where he talks about, um, you know, people from different backgrounds all enjoy the same, well, we all enjoy the same books now because of the, the printing press. We also in, all enjoy the same uh, TV programs. There isn't a resource gap there because they're just, everything is is at such a nominal price that it, it's affordable to everyone and i think it's about making sure that that money is no longer a a salient factor in the the opportunities and the information that you have access to um i don't it's not you know it's not going to level the playing field entirely because money will always uh, have an influence if we think you know one of the things i talk about that i think is a massive barrier is is child poverty unless we address that then you know we're never going to truly level the playing field um resource gap between the state and private school i think can be narrowed uh by the use of technology because that is a powerful resource that will be available to both 
so proportionately it will go down, but there'll still be the gap that, that exists um, between those sectors. Um, and then and then other issues. I mean, you talked about arts and the idea of dropping out of arts. I mean, part of the reason there is because in, in highly sort of risky and, and volatile professions, what you really need is a safety net, uh, you know, just so you can you can stomach the difficult times. That takes money. Technology is not going to be the answer to a problem like that. So yeah. I used to um, say to yeah. my kids when I was teaching, it's it's kind of it's easier to become a lawyer than an artist. Right. Like <laughs> because ultimately there's yeah, a path. Yeah. And as long as you achieve and you get your grades, you can get in and, and, and you can you can do it. I guess for me, the question would just I, I want to leave everyone with in, in terms of this bit is just do we honestly think that those programs would have told me to be a hairdresser but would have said the same thing to a girl with a similar profile in a private school and I guess if it did if we can get to a point where the algorithms and everything else gives you the same outcome because I also think it's easier by the way to pick being a hairdresser from where I was if that's what you want to do and if you want to be one you should be one I, I supported many many of my students into health and beauty careers because I felt it was absolutely right for them and I would never stop anybody who wanted to do that I think it's if you are motivated to help people look a million dollars with hot air and water, as a kid once said to me, you know, that is an incredible job to do. Um, but what I sometimes think is it's very hard to do that if you're from a wealthy background. Nobody tells you you're allowed to do that. Actually, if your parents have paid a lot of money for your education, they often won't let you become a chef or an artist or a hairdresser, even when that's your heart's desire. So there's something about evening it up on, on both yeah, sides. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would say, I mean, two things on that. I would say, first of all, I think technology should always that are providing information it should always be the emphasis on here's the information to go and make your own decision you know particularly around careers because that is such a personal thing to the individual um and yeah i completely agree with you that um so it's social media is not about saying you know you must go and mm. become a, a banker a judge uh, it's not about saying you must go to oxbridge it's about making sure that the probability of you getting to any destination uh, that you find fulfilling is not influenced by your background at all. Uh, so, we, you know, we should expect to see more people from disadvantaged backgrounds going to uh, Oxford or Cambridge, also going to going to RADA, going to um, Campbellwell College of Art we, sh we should see all of that but we should also see more people um, from from privileged backgrounds going to professions that aren't normally what they would would you know you would, uh, wouldn't typically associate with those backgrounds because as you said they are they are fulfilling roles and and there's a huge number of ways to to define what we mean by fulfilling and and yeah I think so for fundamentally for me it's about empowerment and, and choice and, and not letting this sort of roll of the dice based on where you were born have much if any influence on on where you end up uh in later life i have a final question which is that um you compared virtual internships to the printing press which i thought was brave um, i don't think you meant to do it quite like that so they're not quite they're not quite a parallel but maybe then one of the things with the printing press is it did take hundreds of years from the point that we invented this thing to us having mass literacy affordable in people's pockets and homes um how quickly do you think we will get to a reality of say private tutoring at virtual tutoring being affordable for the majority of families, even 50% of families within the UK, for example? 
I personally, I think it could something like that in terms of the the, the efficacy of of AI based platforms could be done remarkably quickly. Um, I think the software is largely there. It's you know it's it's been maturing at a, an accelerated rate over. Um, over the last few years, I think what's holding us back is is a lot of that is the hardware to go with it. So um, there's a report that came out by by Teach First recently, and they've 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 explicitly said, you know, we need to get to a point where everyone has got a a device uh, that they can learn from and has got sufficient connectivity. Um, and these, you know, and, and we know from from uh, from the experience over the last eighteen months that. There are huge disparities in in that in access to device, but this, the really sad thing is we knew that well before COVID. We knew that uh, you know I think it was Nominet um, had a report a few years ago saying that around a million students didn't have adequate access to a device and connectivity, and and as technologies accelerate, that that digital divide was obviously going to come back and and bite us. Um, but it's not inevitable. There are countries uh, that have, have addressed that. So in Uruguay, you've got uh, Plan Cibel, who is the um, state agency that basically ensures that you know everyone has got sufficient digital access. And it was it took the willpower. It's sort of you know if you get the the philosophical and the belief right that this this can be done. I think there's there's no reason it can't be. And, and we're not talking. You know, huge sums of money. I mean, devices. There are affordable devices that that uh, the government could provide um, with students. And obviously, if you're buying them on mass, you can get a good deal if you uh, are savvy about it. Um, there's a lot of debate around the the, the national um, tutoring program. And I, what I'd really like to see is. Um, as well as it being funded really well and, and getting the resources it needs, because I think it's you know a fantastic, much needed scheme, to almost supplement it with a national intelligent tutoring scheme using the best AI platforms that we've got available and giving students, uh, making sure students have got the device to use them, um, those platforms, and using that as part of the catch-up effort. So I think you know, we, you know, just as Uruguay has got uh, a similar system. It would be great if we could have that by the end of this academic year. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I, I think we need well, Lisa, to. Are you? I mean, I'm just. I'm amazed at how sort of how convinced you are that the software. I mean, software development is unbelievably difficult. I think we've got like maths and MFL are the two which lend themselves to this reasonably well. Okay, so I think we, we we've got and there's decades now where you know we were using Rosetta Stone and things like that back when I was uh, when I was teaching. Um, I think they've been around for a long time. Like, literally, is there anywhere in the world anyone can, can teach you history adaptively, like really genuinely? Or, or is it just that we've taken sort of tools that we used in schools and we've put them on computers and they're more efficient? So I can do you a test. I can tell you which questions you failed. I can, I can make, like, there's bits and pieces of computer programs that we've had for a long time. But the software, like, you seem a lot more convinced than most people. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's, that's, I mean... Uh, partly about how you how you would structure it in in the use of um, lessons, and I think all all subjects have got a sort of a high degree of component, which is you know your your knowledge, your recall. You know, you you history is largely about the the skills of of actually being able to analyze sources, um, 
you know, provide a sort of join the points up in history and, and provide a narrative to it. But you need to know a lot about the facts and the the um, the ins and outs in order to do that effectively and in order to do that in a meaningful way at all. And and the technologies and adaptive technologies that are used effectively in, in maths, uh, in science, in, in languages can be used to, to teach that part. And I think what you've got then is a sort isn't of... Isn't that just like flashcards? Isn't that just like... Because I can, yeah, I can totally believe there is like a computer program that we probably could have had even 10 years ago where I can put in a bunch of facts. I either have like missing words and I type them in or I kind of, I memorize some stuff and it asks me multiple choice. Like there's like stuff like that. But is that AI or are we just talking about tech solutions, tech textbooks, tech testing rather than anything that's more like complicated than that? Well, I mean, to the I mean, what AI is very good at in that regards is is um, more personalised identification of your needs as you move through the content. So part of it is working almost like um, you know, like a, a music streaming um, or, or film TV platform and is working out. In those cases, it's working out what you like. In these cases, mm-hmm. working out what you need um, and slotting in. The relevant subjects as you needed there's also ways that it can personalize um the delivery so providing um individualized feedback um changing the, the order of questions um perhaps changing the difficulty of questions working out what type of material you respond you respond best to as well so i think those are some really powerful things that take us quite quite far away from the the flashcard approach i think the other thing that the more advanced technologies are very good at is actually using any learning opportunity as an opportunity to gather information on how students Mm. learn which can then be um fed back to the classroom i think i you know personally would like when i talk about um private tutoring and replacing private tutoring i almost see it as sort of not as a as a sort of separate part of the classroom but seeing it as an extension of the classroom and, and that data being fed back to, to teachers who can then support students on a more individual basis based on this information that they've gained from that. Mm, those are, I, I used to use an analogy years, about 10 years ago, I think, when like MOOCs were first happening. And I wrote this blog and I looked at medical devices. And one of the things up until the early 1900s, of course, people always had stethoscopes for a long time, but you actually can't tell that much from, a, from listening to a heart, you can you couldn't work out there are different types of heart attacks. And I think it's the early 1900s. I can't quite remember where we go from stethoscopes, but essentially to like EKGs where you can clip a thing on people's hands and you can see the heart rates. But once you move to that bit where you can see the heart rates, we essentially can operate completely differently on heart attacks because some heart attacks are because there's not enough blood and some is because there's too much blood. Think that's correct. Any medical biologists? I'm sorry if I'm wrecking it. Um, but but essentially, that's what that's that's the difference. And I think that often with education, right? Can we get to the point as you said before with the data as oil thing? But can we get to the point where data is an EKG, where it's giving us something more sophisticated than when we stand in a classroom or we mark the tests ourselves? We can listen, but we can't get that visual, more granular level that can help us make a better decision. And of course, medical stuff is always quite challenging because you know, ultimately, if I give you paracetamol, your body will react to it, whether I like, whether you like me or not. With education, it's slightly more complicated. Motivation comes into it and everything else, but it's not that much more complicated. There are things I genuinely believe if your brain does it, and it does it lots and lots, 
you will learn it, right? Like if I make you memorize your multiple tables every morning for, for 10 years, you are going to remember them. <laughs> that's not, that's not, no matter yeah. how much you think you're going to not do it, like eventually you will. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you, I think now on, on some of the bits that you're saying here around, okay, um, it will give us better and more interesting data. And it might be that that still is a flashcard approach, but if it can be a better flashcard approach that's more sophisticated, that's more adapted to you, then ultimately that would be a better thing. I'm just, I think I'm probably yeah. sceptical on how long it will take. No, definitely. And I think there's, you know, I think when I was teaching, one of the most useful uh, papers that I ever read was uh, Black and Williams Inside the Black Box. And um, one of the, you know, whilst working in the, the AI field, I think one of the, the, the best people to learn from is Professor Rose Luckin. And she talks about AI being a means of, of opening up the, the black box that's learning itself. And I think that's a, that's a nice, a sort of a nice way, though, you know, there's putting those two things together, you know, the secret to good teaching and learning is getting as much information as possible mm. is, is using that information uh, to inform the decisions you take when you move on from a, a particular topic, what you do next to, to support someone who's, who still hasn't got something um, you know, how you motivate students. I mean, you know, teachers are making decisions all the time and they're, they're so good at it. that it becomes second nature, but having that additional insight um, into into learning uh, into how learners are learning at a really granular level i think could be a really powerful tool and i think all it's re- all the technology is really doing is sitting on top of what we already know is one of the most effective um pedagogies which you know assessment for learning using feedback uh you know on on people's learning and that's i think it's it's main power i think is is working out what already works differentiation already works ai can take that to the next level formative assessment assessment of learning works really well ai can take that to the next level and it can give us a lot of time to do lots of other exciting things as well in education slightly different question then um which was a slightly different topic which is just for teachtap we've obviously collected now like four years of daily survey data on 8,000 teachers we've got tons and tons and tons of stuff if you were going to do AI on that like on a bunch of stuff about what teachers opinions are is there anything that you think you'd like set it off and running on hmm. I mean that's a yeah really good question um I suppose I mean I think one of the really interesting things is to find out what makes teachers fulfilled and and what what can make it a most make it as enjoyable and what and what hurdles we can we can overcome as part of that so I think that's that's something that it would be really interesting to sort of to mine for is to get insights into that because you know we, we talked about reducing teacher workload as a way of, of making the, the profession more attractive and making sure that we can get the best people in but there are lots of other factors and you know the best people to give us that is, is teachers themselves um, so it's uh yeah i think the the sort of the word where the AI, ai can change the the job description but it's up to there are other factors in terms of the working environment for teachers and it would be great to find out what we can do in that that area 
that's our plan. I think we're definitely going to start looking across. We've got several years now and we can also see who's left their job and who's been promoted and everything else. So um, we used to ask questions and still do about free tea and coffee. So we know that one is always a bit divisive. Can we work out if free tea and coffee actually keeps you in your job? Do you do um, what, what, what have you what have you found from that? Out of interest? Um, yeah, so a big thing is subjects in secondary school. So we know that subject is a real driving force for people coming into school and it keeps many, many teachers in secondaries really interested in their job, which has implications for people when the government, for instance, suggests like modern foreign languages, we don't have enough teachers. Could we get every teacher who's teaching another subject but has an MFL A-level to come and teach MFL? Actually, that could really put a lot of them off their job if they love the subject that they're already teaching. So that's quite an interesting one. We know, obviously, that they they like the students, particularly in primary school, they're just very interested in children and spending time with children. But there's all kinds of other stuff around um behavior really comes out as a big reason why people move schools or what attracts them to schools and we do know that by and large teachers have ever such a slight preference for teaching in the schools that are stricter or where the behavior is considered good and that has implications in areas of deprivation where behavior is sometimes traditionally seen as less good and some of it's just signaling like as, as simple as I feel that this school has a good behavior policy right if you don't know or the school has a bad reputation then you're less likely to apply to it and one of the recommendations we did in the Sutton Trust report was signal in your school advert what your job what your behavior policy is like tell people how you deal with behavior in your school, make that part of the recruitment pack. Don't be afraid of talking about behavior. You need to lean in because it will get people to move. Um, we specifically, know, what did you, oh, sorry. What, um, what did you find on the uh, the tea and biscuits? Because I think that would- Oh, on the tea, so on the tea and biscuits, we've, we've never run the analysis as to whether or not it keeps you in your school. What I can tell you is I once had a teacher who came up to me at a conference and said that she loved TeachTab because she'd stormed into her head teacher's office, having been told previously that they couldn't have free tea and coffee because the taxpayer wasn't allowed to pay for it. She went in and showed that 55% of schools did have free tea and coffee and therefore wanted her free tea and coffee and the teacher had changed, a head teacher had changed it. So she certainly loved TeachTap from that perspective, but we don't know. The big, the reason we started TeachTap all those years ago was because Becky, Professor Becky Allen, my co-founder and I, had both taught in schools where in one of the years we taught, we taught in multiple classrooms. I think she taught in something like 17 and I taught in 12, right? And it was a disaster. And it both made us more negative about the job. So our theory was what, how many, we had a theory that it, how many classrooms you teach in affects whether or not you stay in the job. And for about five years, we talked about this and we hadn't got any way of finding out if it was true because no one in the ecosystem could tell us what the average teacher even taught in. So we set this app up, we find out, we then find how many people leave their jobs for two years. And it turns out no dice, like, no, our hypothesis, we have no evidence from our hypothesis that tells us this actually makes any significant difference whatsoever. So we were completely wrong. I'm emotionally still disagree with it, <laughs> but the data says I'm wrong. Actually, having your own classroom doesn't seem to affect your retention. What are you going to do? Mm. No, that's really interesting. I'm just trying to think if that that's, uh, gels with my ex. I mean, it could be. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, d- did you look at the distance between classrooms? Because I wonder if that would be a factor because... No, um, we haven't looked at other stuff. So I, I also think yeah. maybe if you're a new teacher, it might have more of an impact, whereas once you're experienced, we also know there's like a stickiness as well. Once people are in school a period of time, they get used to it. So if you're only in a school a short period and you don't like it, you might be more likely to leave versus if you've been there four or five years, you're going to want to go for promotions. But then can you find promotions in your area? So there's all kinds of reasons why people leave their jobs. And I guess that's the problem with, as you talked about before, a single data point or even five or six data points. You miss the nuances. Whereas if you have, as we do now, thousands and thousands of data points, it might be that tea and coffee matters, but only if you get to school at 7.30 a.m. and you eat lunch at school and you stay there till seven o'clock. Those people who only come for a few hours and bring their own lunch, you know, they they don't really care because they bring their tea and coffee with them and they can go back home at four o'clock. So there's all kinds of little things we could probably find out in the future. Yeah, definitely. Well, an interesting one related to that, I'd be interested to find out, is whether people prefer like mini staff rooms for departments or whether like having one whole staff room is better. Because when we did, when my, my experience, the school I worked at that did have tea and uh, coffee, I wonder if it's real value was bringing people to the main staff room to socialize, mm. to, to really create a sense of community spirit, which was ultimately the value rather than uh, the Bourbons uh, themselves. Um but then would you get the same impact if you experiment. had a, a little a little um small class as uh, mini staff rooms for individual departments or even you know on different corridors for instance you may not get that same impact it may create a more insular feel i don't know we have an experiment on that because last year about 50 percent of schools at least at the beginning of the year had their staff rooms closed because of social distancing needing to use it for extra classrooms so if we went back and looked there's other questions we ask about for example have you have you got a best friend at work um how do you feel about your colleagues do you feel that if you had a problem you could find somebody very rapidly i wonder if we went back and looked at that period of time and the staff room was closed if we would see any any influence and i worry deeply about new teachers in the profession in the last two years because they've not had the ability to socialise with their colleagues. And I honestly think, especially in a challenging school, if I hadn't have had a number of people to come in and pick me up literally off the floor some days when I was crying, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have stayed as long as I did in teaching. Um, so those people are very, very, they're very, very important. So the data is important, but so is picking people off the floor and giving them a biscuit. <laughs> Tom, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. I know I've, I've like needled you and probed at you a little bit. Is it worth just saying the name of your book one last time so that people can find it? Oh, yeah, that would be great. Uh, So it's uh, Cracking Social Mobility, How AI and Other Innovations Can Help to Level the Playing Field. And I I specifically uh, made sure it was help and not just level the playing field because there's a lot more uh, that needs to be done other than AI. It's, It's only part of the solution. But, yeah, I'm optimistic that it can be an important part of the solution and, and can give a real boost. It's a complete treasure trove and I read it in one night. So it's very, very readable. I think that's that's for sure. And it's worth people getting it just for the amount of information you stuck in it. I came away thinking, wow, this guy must have spent years reading stuff to get all of those references in there. So it's really readable. Um, from our side, obviously we'd, we'd love to carry on the conversation with you around TeachTap at some point and maybe we can have a chat about how AI might be better used at TeachTap at some point and any teachers who are listening if they want to join in with the research then they should find us at teachtap.co.uk because that's that's where we get everybody to join up seven and a half thousand teachers answer every day 
I can't all be wrong. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. So Fantastic. lovely to meet you. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Lovely to meet you too. Cheers. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much to uh, Thomas and Laura. Um, I thought that was a really good and honest conversation with so many good resources also shared and now lined up on our show notes page. Um, And that includes, of course, uh, Thomas's book and uh, also um, the resources shared by Laura as well. In other news, you may recall I've been working on a self-paced online course, How to Launch a Podcast. This is now live on the website and we have our first bookings. So if you're keen to find out more about podcasting, do feel free to head on over and sign up for lifetime access. What else? Uh, ASU GSV Summit uh, EdTech Creator Challenge celebrates organisations and creators leveraging immersive and real-time 3D technology to make learning and education accessible to all. Applications are open for the challenge up until September the 10th, so a very quick turnaround and winners are eligible for funding from a pool of 500,000 US dollars. Uh, Reimagine Education is also back this year and I'm judging once again, so do go and check out the lineup and all the things you can get involved with there. And finally, um, get in touch if you would like to advertise on the EdTech podcast. We have the usual pre and post roll slots available now that we have our content up and running. Um, So yeah, if that's of interest, then drop us a note. That's all for now. It's great to be back and do hope that you're all well wherever you are. Um, Happy listening and see you back here next time. Bye bye.